Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, the most wonderful time of the year. It's Christmas time. For a lot of people, that means, if we're lucky, time off, time to sit by the fire, warm our toes, drink some hot chocolate, and tell stories. Some of those stories are true. Some of them are made up. Today, we've got that second kind of story. It's by Robert Rand. It's called For the Love of Susie Louise, and our narrator is Ken Marks. When God created heaven and earth, and from the rib of Adam, woman, he did make, surely no sweeter and lovelier creature emerged than Susie Louise Anderson, my first love. we met back in 1961, I was seven and so was she, and our romance lasted two long years, until her parents moved to a farm in Wisconsin and I was left behind in Skokie, Illinois, bereft and heartbroken. Susie Louise lived in a house on the other side of the alley from us, in a world on the other side of God. She was a Christian, one of the few non-Jews on our block fruit of the poisonous tree, so to speak, because a Jewish boy and a non-Jewish girl were never to mingle or mate. But we were young and the chance of tainted offspring negligible. So even my grandpa abided our union, however begrudgingly, even though he was a religious man. She's a cute little goy, he said. Beyond that, though, he'd have nothing to do with her. Truth be told, Susie's belief in the Holy Trinity only enhanced her appeal. Her faith made her new and exciting and strange and exotic, totally unlike any other girl I'd ever met. She had blue eyes, the first blue eyes I'd known, and blonde hair, curly blonde hair that meandered and flowed like a river in paradise down to the back of her knees. And her parents were different from mine. They ate donuts for breakfast, sweet sugar-glazed yeast donuts, and I ate them too when I'd stay overnight. And they buttered their bologna sandwiches, and they let me help decorate their Christmas tree, and even concocted a tinfoil Star of David ornament with my name on it. And most curiously and wonderfully of all, they came from a family of farmers— and they owned a horse and a goat and some chickens, which they kept right there in their own backyard in Skokie. The horse's name was Buster, and I got to ride him up and down the alley between our houses until my friend Norman Mayer Ashkenaz's father stepped on some horse manure one day while taking out the garbage. Joseph Ashkenaz complained to the police. We don't need any goddamn Gentile horse crap around here, he said and the police, invoking a 70-year-old ordinance prohibiting livestock from running at large within village limits, made the Andersons move their menagerie out to the country. (laughs) Susie and I were a private couple and jealously guarded our time together. We did so because we were different, and our differences made us special, and we wanted to live in our own special world. So we kept to ourselves, 
blocks and wouldn't let Norman Mayer or Eva Singer or any of the other kids on the block join in our games. We'd play jacks on the front porch of her house and jump rope in the driveway and go round the world on rainy days in her living room with our yo-yos. We'd walk to school together, trading notes on the latest second or third grade gossip, how Mrs. Crone made Sharon Brickman cry, how Norman Mayer spilled a carton of chocolate milk over Sylvia Schamberg's head by mistake as he tried to shimmy himself, lunch tray aloft on one hand through a crowded basement cafeteria, and how Sylvia Schamberg subsequently retaliated by pouring her creamed corn down the front of Norman Mayer's pants. We'd play at Susie's house mostly, for that's where Buster lived, and as I fed him carrots or cubes of sugar, Susie would tell me about summers on her family's farm, about fields of corn and a scarecrow named Oscar and a milk cow named Hazel, and ice cream they'd make from scratch from the milk Hazel gave them. And once, I actually got to visit that farm and taste that ice cream. Susie's parents invited me up and my folks agreed. So we all rose early one Indian summer Saturday morning in October, and me and Susie and her parents and Buster drove five hours in a Chevy station wagon with a horse trailer hitched behind it to central Wisconsin and the Anderson family farm. Susie's Uncle Tommy and Aunt Becky ran the place, and they treated me most kindly. I got to squeeze Hazel's udder and ride Buster bareback and go canoeing in a real creek that ran through the property. I met my first pig on that farm, a tiny pet oinker named Piglet, who ran all over the place and squealed with confidence and bravado, and rightly so, for Uncle Tommy had trained the little guy to scurry down to the main road each day to retrieve the morning paper. The thing was so smart and so cute that I had to question why we Jews despised pigs so. And for Saturday night dinner, we had food so curious and tasty that to this day I can still recall the menu collard greens, and pan-fried trout with cornbread, and Mrs. Anderson's homemade sweet tomato chutney on the side. The trout was the coolest surprise, freshly caught that day and sitting there whole on my plate, smiling a little fishy smile at me, eyes staring sideways the way fish eyes do, checking out the company gathered there to feast. "'I never had fish this way before,' I said." "'Well, what do you all eat?' Uncle Tommy asked. "'Locks and gefilte, mostly.' "'Well, Bobby,' Uncle Tommy said, grinning, "'I'd a caught one of those for you if I coulda, "'but they don't swim up here in these parts.'" And the next morning, before coming home, the Andersons asked me if I wouldn't like to go with them to church. And I immediately said yes, because I'd never been to church before, and it would be interesting to tell my grandfather about the experience, theologian that he was. And what transpired there in that countryside chapel was surely quite interesting. The singing and kneeling and tapers and holy water and all. And especially neat was the thing at the end with the wine and the wafers, which I insisted on tasting in the name of good fellowship and ecumenicalism. And the food went down smoothly, until later on when Susie told me I'd more or less eaten the blood and flesh of the Lord Almighty, 
at which point I got a bit queasy with indigestion. But all told, it was a most glorious weekend, and I returned to my village ever more entranced with Susie Louise Anderson, and the Christian way of life she lived seemed ever more interesting and far less remote than it had before. Until one day, some weeks later, in early December, when Susie approached me during school recess and asked me point-blank with anguish-filled eyes and soft-spoken words, Bobby, why did you kill Jesus Christ? controversy over the abduction and presumed death of Jesus was reported in full in the morning edition of that day's Skokie Life newspaper. I read it upon returning home from school and immediately understood why Susie had been so distraught. The front page headline declared, Jesus Snatched, Feared Dead, Crisis Looms. Here's what the article said. The 16-inch, three-pound plaster likeness of the infant Christ was reported missing early this morning by Frankie Conroy, a village hall custodian. I arrived at work as usual at five this morning and Jesus was gone, Conroy said. I said to myself, somebody went and stole the Lord, so I called up the police as fast as I could. A Skokie police spokesman, Sergeant Albert Warner, said no trace of Jesus had been found and no ransom note left at the scene of the crime. He added that authorities fear for the worst. So Jesus was gone, whereabouts unknown, and for poor little Susie Louise Anderson, the Savior appeared to be dead, for his manger lay brutally stripped, cold and bare, on the green at Village Hall. And as her question to me at recess suggested... The blame for such an affront lay squarely at my feet, and at the feet of every other Jew in Skokie, for we had opposed the nativity scene, and who but us would have gained from an act of deicide, however misguided. When I saw Susie the next morning, she was a little bit distant, the way nine-year-old girls get when they're angry at the men in their lives. She barely spoke on the way to school, and she bit her lower lip a lot. And those blue eyes of hers avoided all contact with mine, preferring instead the safety of the sidewalk or street. I'm really sorry about what happened with Jesus, I said, finally, guessing the cause of her mood. She stopped walking and turned to me, her eyes now directly fixed on mine. Some of my parents' church friends came over to visit last night, she said. Yeah, I said. Jesus was all they could talk about. What did they say? I asked. She sighed and bit her lip again. They all said that the Jews did it, that the Jews took baby Jesus away from us and probably murdered him. I looked at her, not quite knowing how to respond. I was feeling guilty. Mr. O'Rourke was there, she continued. You know him? His son Dennis is that big high school football star? Yeah, he scored three touchdowns last week, one on a 70-yard pass reception, I said, trying to brighten the tone of our conversation. Mr. O'Rourke was really angry, Susie said. Susie told me what Mr. O'Rourke had said. 
that he and his family had lived in Skokie for 25 years, that they'd moved here long before most of the Jews, that now, in his view, the Jews just kept coming and that they're trying to take over and they're trying to push the Christians around. He said some of the village's Jewish residents even complained about prayers in the public schools. Mr. O'Rourke says the Jews have gone too far by attacking the manger at Village Hall, Susie said, and he says Jews are Christ killers, and he said some other mean things too. She paused for a moment, trying, I think, to decide whether to tell me what those other things were. Anyway, she said, a lot of the people at my house last night agreed with Mr. O'Rourke, although my parents told him to calm down. And I was upset with what he was saying, so I walked right up to him and said, My boyfriend Bobby is a Jewish person, and he's not at all like what you say. He's got nothing against Jesus, and I know he doesn't object to Christmas, and he even went to church with us once. And his parents are really nice, too. They're not mean like you say. And Mr. O'Rourke just looked at me and said I was too young to know what I was talking about and that maybe I should go to bed. At which point my daddy asked him to leave. And later on, after everyone had gone and my daddy came to kiss me goodnight, I said, Daddy, why was Mr. O'Rourke so mean about the Jews? And he said that there are some people who are just like that and to pay them no mind. And I asked my daddy whether the Jews had taken Jesus away from us. And my daddy said it could be that a Jewish person stole the Christ child, and that was an awful thing to do. And he said he thought it was wrong for the Jews to oppose the nativity scene, too but he said he hoped things would work out okay in the end. Susie drew silent again and turned away from me. I reached for her hand, and she let me hold it, interlocking her pinky with mine. You didn't steal Jesus, did you, Bobby? I mean, you didn't have anything to do with it, right? Even though you're Jewish? No, of course not, I said. And the nativity scene? Do you have anything against that? Nope, I said. I hadn't even known that the thing was in Skokie until just the day before, and I couldn't see how its being there affected my life one way or the other, other than the negative way it was affecting me right now with Susie being so upset. And I figured that until this thing was fixed to her liking, Susie would continue to be unhappy, which, considering my feelings about her, would make me unhappy too. So I resolved then and there to do something about it. Don't worry, Susie Louise. I said. Things will turn out okay. You'll see. And we made our way to school. And I sought out the counsel of my friend, Norman Mayer, whose help I needed as I prepared to go out in search of Jesus Christ. I located Norman Mayer at lunchtime, huddled over a plate of hot dogs, french fries, and Twinkies. I need to find Jesus, I said. Huh? he replied. I need to find Jesus. He's vanished, kidnapped, maybe dead, and Susie's upset, so I need to find him. Norman Mayer bit into a Twinkie. How do you plan to do that? he asked. A posse, I said, and I need your help. He could see I meant business. Okay, he said, but don't tell my father. What do we need to do? First off, I need information. You're smarter than anyone else around here, so tell me what you know. About what? he asked. Jesus, Norman Mayer, about Jesus, I said. 
He crinkled his brow, adjusted his glasses, closed his eyes, and thought for a moment. I think he was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish? I asked. Yep, pretty neat, huh? Now I was stumped. Jesus was Jewish. Christians love Jesus. Jews don't love Jesus. But Jesus was Jewish. It was confusing, and I wanted to know more about this man Susie worshipped. Why did he move her so? It was hard for a Jewish kid to divine the meaning of Christ when Christ, for most Jews, stood squarely aloof, or aloft, as it were, as the resurrected son of an alien god. My determination to make Susie happy by finding Jesus, to understand who he was and why she cared for him dearly, led to considerable reflection on my part. But apart from my friendship with Susie, of course, I didn't have much to go on. It was Christmas time that gave me the most exposure to Christ, for even Skokie celebrated his birth. Christian homes exploded with wonderful displays of ornaments and lights, and believe it or not, even a few Jewish households joined the fun with Hanukkah bushes and the like. But I remember Christmas mostly for the annual East Prairie Grammar School Christmas pageant, and from it I discovered the spirit and beauty and vision of what I think moved Susie so. We all had to participate in the pageant, regardless of religion. Some Jewish kids objected to the exercise, but I loved it, mostly because of the music. The carols were lovely and captivating and mysterious. Silent Night and God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen were my very favorites. And when the combined third, fourth, and fifth grade chorus sang out fortissimo, Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. I shivered, and tears filled my eyes, so strong was the pull of the song. The words, to me, were incidental and even meaningless, though their utterance did, I suppose, amount to blasphemy and sacrilege in a Jewish sort of way. If I had any doubt about that, my grandfather set me straight when he walked out of the pageant, the one and only time he attended, unable to stomach the heresy. Afterward, he lectured me on the dangers of assimilation, quoting his namesake, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, the chief rabbi of Palestine, who warned that Jewry in the diaspora has no real foundation and is disintegrating at an alarming rate. Assimilation, however, wasn't the issue in my search for Jesus. Susie Louise Anderson was. The posse I'd gathered to search for the missing Christ child included me, Norman Mayer, Eva Singer, and Shlomo Rappaport, Reb Rappaport's 12-year-old son. Eva consented to join us because she liked me. Shlomo agreed only because I paid him. He was his father's son, and the bribe was exacting. Two and a half bucks, a Ron Santo baseball card, a package of root beer fizzies, and the latest two Captain America comic books. But the payoff, I figured, was large, for Shlomo's participation gave our endeavor the color and cover of rabbinical license. Shlomo Rappaport was a pint-sized version of his father. Barely five feet tall, he wore payas, the side locks of the most reverential, and he dressed like his father in white shirts with black jacket and pants. 
His complexion was pallid and pasty from an absence of sunlight. And his nature, to my mind, was unsophisticated and biting from an absence of socialization. Shlomo went to yeshiva, so his circle of contacts was limited and his sense of his place in the world narrow. Our strategy was straightforward. A Jew had kidnapped Jesus, so among Jews we would look. In the area, we became known as the Jesus Rescue Committee. Here's how we worked. The four of us gathered at my house each day after school. We put on white armbands with the Star of David drawn in the cloth so as to distinguish ourselves from other law enforcement authorities. Norman Mayer suggested that each of us take on specific tasks so as better to coordinate the investigation. Shlomo would ring all the doorbells or knock on the doors and convey our initial greetings according to a script I'd written. Hello, Mrs. Cohen, he'd say, bowing. How are you today? May God bless your Jewish household and your lovely daughter, Rivka. Then I would take over as official group spokesman. Mrs. Cohen, I would say, we're looking for Jesus. As you probably know, he was kidnapped from the nativity scene at Village Hall. We think that a Jew did it. Do you have any information as to his whereabouts? Then I described the baby Jesus as best I could. Sixteen inches tall, three pounds in weight, with outstretched plaster arms, and I queried as to whether my interviewee had crossed paths with such a figure. Eva was the designated note-taker, and she'd stand beside me, pencil in hand, writing down anything relevant anyone said. She was also our official interpreter and helped me out when Yiddish seemed the more appropriate language of interrogation. As for Norman Mayer, due to his bulk, he was our bodyguard. Given the fact that the theft of Christ had put the community on edge, we figured it was only prudent to care for security. So, armed with a baseball bat and a 12-ounce water pistol, Norman Mayer walked shotgun as we marched single file from house to house. As the days passed and our work continued, the reception was mixed. "'What on earth are you kids doing?' Mrs. Lichtenstein said." What kind of a thing is this for Jews to be messing with? Mr. Zimmer added. Let the Gentiles handle it. Hastamal gesehen Jesusen, Mrs. Rabinovich? Have you seen Jesus, Mrs. Rabinovich? Eva asked. Yoisel? Oi vey, ich soll nicht leben. Jesus? Oi vey, I should never live so long, the old lady replied. A few of our neighbors welcomed our efforts. Bonnie Goldstein, the Oakton Street baker's wife, gave us cookies each evening to nourish our search. Her husband, Manny, took out an ad in the Skokie Life offering a year's worth of onion bagels to anyone providing information that would lead to the recovery of Jesus alive. And Irving Weiner, who ran the neighborhood drugstore, said that what we were doing was a mitzvah. The Torah teaches us, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he said. Seems to me Christians are our neighbors, and Jesus is important to them. You kids are doing the right thing, and you should be proud of yourselves. The problem was, we weren't getting much in the way of information, 
and Christmas was fast approaching. And by the time Christmas Eve came, our effort had failed miserably. Jesus was still missing and most surely dead, and there was no substitute. For village hall officials had pointedly left his manger empty as an act of defiance against the perpetrator who'd snatched him. Christians and Jews eyed each other with uncommon levels of suspicion. And Susie was crestfallen, grateful for my effort to find her Lord, but convinced that without baby Jesus, her Christmas would collapse like a building that had lost its foundation. She didn't even go to midnight mass, despite entreaties from her parents who went without her. She stayed home, alone and teary-eyed, an orphan of the missing Son of God. A few months after that bleak Christmas had come and gone, Susie and her family moved, unexpectedly, to their farm in Wisconsin. Before her departure, Susie and I carried on as good friends. We spent the remainder of the winter doing what we'd always done, talking, playing, walking to school, keeping to ourselves. We didn't speak much about what had happened that Christmas once it was over. Today, when I think of Susie, what I see first is her long golden hair and her ocean blue eyes staring out at me from her living room window that Christmas Eve night in 1963. She was gazing at me lovingly, as if by my presence the sadness above her had lifted, at least for the moment. And she watched, with a hint of a smile breaking her lips, as I stood there alone on the porch of her house, holding a candle and singing, to her, not to Jesus, the beautiful strains of a seasonal carol whose melody God, whether Christian or Jewish, surely must have written. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, Holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly That was Ken Marks reading For the Love of Susie Louise, a story by Robert Rand. Sound design in the story was by Jonathan Gruber. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. We thank you so much for joining us, and please do come back for more great conversations and great stories next year on Vox Tablet. <laughs> <laughs>